Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Luke 12, verses 13 through 21, and it can be found on page 1,617 in your pew Bibles. The Parable of the Rich Fool. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. Money, 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 money. This summer we're working through, for those of you who haven't been with us, we're working through uh, the seven deadly sins in a series called Glittering Vices. Uh, the Glittering Vices name comes from a book by Rebecca Canondike the Young, uh, who did some research on the history of the seven deadly sins and how they are so often things that attract us and draw us into them. They seem good, and in fact they are good in many ways, but, but the, the sin comes in in that they get distorted. They distort our loves, our love for God, our love for neighbors, even our love for ourselves and our love for creation. They, they twist things in ways that they were never intended to. There is some debate among the scholars and commentators on, on Scripture and especially around the seven deadly sins if the root of all the sins is pride or if the root of all the sins is love of money. There's a Scripture passage that actually says the root of all sin is the love of money. And so greed, greed, this, this deadly sin of greed, uh, also called avarice, and we'll talk about that in a minute, has a way of getting into us and, and getting at, at really the core of who we are and the core of our desires, and it, it has a way of twisting those desires around. Money. It has a way of pulling us in. Perhaps when we think of the word greed, some of us will go to Wall Street the stock exchange, but I wanted to contextualize that a little bit. I'm American, so that's where I went. Some of you may go to Bay Street. 
we have a tendency to say that, that capitalism is bad and anybody who's seeking money at all is bad and wrong and, and that's what's evil. Money itself is evil. But that's actually not what this message is about and that's not the message of Scripture. We'll hear a passage a little bit later that, that talks about how God gives us the ability to produce wealth. God gives that ability to us. So we're not in talking about greed, doing a, a condemnation of Wall Street or, or of, of Bay Street, although there is greed there that does need to be called out. But it's not saying that any type of money or any type of earning money is bad. That is not what greed is. It gets much deeper than that surface level. It's coming after our heart's desires and a, a temptation that we have when we talk about money and talk about possessions to kind of hoard it and gather it in and, and say, mine, all mine. And we think of someone like Ebenezer Scrooge in classic literature. I prefer to think of the little guy that sits out back. I, I googled a bunch of images of chipmunks because I've seen these guys before and there are some hilarious ones. Two fisting it, like shoving these little peanuts and acorns into their mouths and there's a whole pile in front of them and their eyes are, are wide open. They're looking for any competition coming towards them. There was another one where, where the chipmunk had both, both cheeks completely full and he's got both hands on an ear of corn that's twice as big as him. I'm like, where are you putting that thing? Greed, avarice that desire to consume more and more and more to the point we never know when to say enough. If we start looking at the history of this deadly sin, one of the things we come across is this odd-sounding word. Usually in the lists of the deadly sins, it actually doesn't say greed. That's only been a more common uh, a, a more contemporary addition to it or clarification of it. The more ancient tradition is to call it avarice. And avarice, its Latin roots, it's, it, the reason they chose that word was, was because it means to crave, to crave something. It's, it's kind of this insatiable desire. You have to have it. It's the only thing you're thinking about. It's all you want. It has kind of behind it the idea of addiction. I'm caught up in this, and it is the only thing that matters, and until I get it, I'll never be satisfied. At least that belief is there. Commentators all the way back, some of the early church fathers, we call them in the 3rd and 4th century, as they were talking about this sin, would say the, the deception of this sin is that you will never be satisfied kind of like King Midas's touch. He can touch everything to turn to gold and he thinks it's the most incredible thing he has and, and finds that it never satisfies him. A craving that can never be satisfied. Augustine, one of the, the great kind of saints and, and leaders of the church and the early church would end up saying we all have a God-shaped hole inside of us something in us that, that can't be satisfied until God is there, until God is present within us and, and we are connected with God. Craving, avarice, 
is attempting to fill that longing for God with anything else that we can, especially with money and possessions. Aquinas, who came along in the 1200s, was, was writing, and he, he described greed and avarice this way. It's an excessive love for money. Notice he didn't say it's a love for money. He didn't kind of push money off and say money doesn't belong. He said it's an excessive love for money and a desire to possess things that money can buy. I remember hearing about a, a, a Christian author who, who wrote some books that were quite popular in his time. And, and one of the things he did afterwards was went out and bought a Ferrari. And as people began to confront him and talk to him about it, it exposed in him this greed that the reason he was writing was just so he could buy more things. That craving, that desire, give me something I can buy, some status, tell me I'm okay by the size of my bank account or the cars in my driveway or the house I have, the neighborhood I live in, the cottage I go to, the vacations I'm on, tell me something that my money gives me significance. Really two consequences to this sin and I'll highlight these in a minute and then we'll jump into the parable. The two consequences, one is that we no longer see God as a generous God. Somewhere along the way in, in putting our focus on money and on possessions, we lose sight of God's provision for us. God as the one who provides. God as the one who actually delights in providing for us, in meeting our needs. Somewhere along the way, as we start to pay more and more attention to our money and our possessions and our things, we forget that God is the one who provides for us. And the second piece with it is, is as that happens, our relationships with God, with other people and creation become a means to an end. And I want to highlight this a little bit, and forgive me if it, it seems a little, well, a little too comical for here. Anybody know who this is? Lorax. Dr. Seuss is one of my favorite theologians, in case you didn't know that. The story of the Lorax is one where, where Dr. Seuss is, is writing about the Onceler, the Onceler who's come up with this great invention called the Thneed, which he can only make from the, the tufts of the truffle trees. And so he goes about building a business in which he cuts down truffle trees all over the place. Lorax comes along as a voice for the trees and a voice for the animals and begins to confront him and, and does so a number of times. And finally, at the last time, the onceler is fed up. And his response is this. And then I got mad. I got terribly mad. I yelled at the Lorax, Now listen here, Dad. All you do is yap-yap and say bad, 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 bad. Well, I have my rights, sir, and I'm telling you I intend to go on doing just what I do. And for your information, you Lorax, I'm figuring, I'm biggering, and biggering, and biggering, and biggering 
turning more truffle trees into thneeds, which everyone, everyone needs. If you know the rest of the story, right after that, they hear a sickening thwap as the last of the truffle trees are cut down. It's a story that does have redemption in it, but it is also a, disto- a story that exposes how the relationships with others and with creation itself get distorted. Now, Dr. Seuss didn't talk about the distortion of the relationship with God, but it's in there too. Everything, everything gets consumed by greed so that the people around us only become a means to to us advancing our agenda of affirming our status and our well-being by how much we have and how much we can accumulate. What we'll come back to at the end is simply our God is a generous God. We're going to get there by looking at this parable and then highlighting three things that, that are part of the bigger scriptural context. One is God's generosity in and through Israel. The second is God's generosity in and through Jesus. And finally, God's generosity in and through us. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Sounds kind of similar to the parable of the prodigal sons that we talked about last week. Inheritance, arguing about the money. And and we don't know if this is the older brother saying to a younger brother who was somehow given the inheritance or if we assume culturally this is probably the younger brother coming up to Jesus saying, hey, my older brother's not doing his job and dividing the inheritance the way he should. Uh, Either way, what we get out of this is that this really is a parable for both brothers. Both of them are caught up in greed and a love of money. One of them who has been given the inheritance is caught up in holding on to it himself. So much so that the other brother feels like he's not being cared for and given his rightful share. And the younger one thinks that the only thing that matters is that he gets his rights. That he has what's coming to him, that that he can hold on to this money, this inheritance. Because everything's going to be okay if I have my inheritance. And what's been lost in between is the relationship between the brothers even as he comes up, that very question to Jesus or request of him, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, reveals that greed already has his heart and has already distorted the relationships. In fact, Jesus says, who made me arbiter and judge? That's his response. And and Jesus giving a clue there, just as he does later on when someone says good teacher to him, he says, why do you call me good? Jesus saying, do you really recognize me for who I am? Are you telling me that I am the God over you? Because if I am, then you're using God just to get money. It becomes kind of like our prayers at times. God, I want, I want, I want, I want, amen. Our relationship with God gets distorted when greed sets in. The rich fool's problems, as the parable goes on, there are several problems that are revealed along the way. 
first is pride. Do you notice Jesus said there was a certain man, uh, a certain field that yielded a crop? The man, uh, Jesus phrased it that the man didn't work the ground and cause it to grow. He just said the man's ground yielded a crop and an abundance of a crop. And, and the guy's response, the first one is, look at my crops. What am I going to do with my crops? There's no understanding as there should have been in that culture of, of the ground being something that God blesses. There's no understanding of God blessing and causing things to grow. There's no understanding of him being a steward, all which would have been there in that culture. My crops, mine. His pride is setting in. There's a selfishness. His response to seeing this abundance is to say, you know what? I can actually retire early. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to take life easy. I'm going to drink and eat and be merry. I'm going to enjoy. No posturing to say, what do I do with these crops? Why has God given them to me? Why have I been entrusted so much? It is simply a selfishness settling in. Now I can kick back and take it easy. It's another problem he has. He ignores God. It's striking in this parable how much he ignores God. He doesn't acknowledge God. He doesn't say thank you to God. There's no gratitude there's no sense of humility that this is a gift from God. There's no sense of why is this year different than the other years, that there's so much here. There's no recognition, no thought given to God's presence. He is completely ignoring God. But even more so, in that culture, what stands out is that he's ignoring God's character. He, as a steward of the land, would have been one who was seeing the richness given to him as something he would turn around and give to others so as to reflect God's goodness. It was built in, as we'll see in a moment, in all sorts of different ways within the Jewish culture. And for him simply to say, this is mine, I'm going to do with it what I want, is not, not just ignoring God as the provider, it's ignoring God's very character as if God did not exist. He makes a very loud declaration here. All mine. Remember God's response in this parable? God's response is, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. It's God's assertion into the middle of this story or the end of this story, God's assertion that you may think you own the crops, you may think you own all of this, you may think it belongs all to you and you have purpose and meaning because of it, but your purpose and meaning is really found in the fact that I have given you life. And because you have failed to see that, I am now taking that life from you. It's actually kind of a harsh word. A heavy word. Gives me some pause because of that abrupt word at the end. Gives me some pause and says, so what is our avarice, our greed? 
where do we see it showing up? First of all, I think one of the things we need to name together is that it's not just about those of us who have money. There are some of us who do have money. We have been blessed by God and we have riches and wealth. But even the poorest among us has greed and can be greedy and full of avarice, this craving. We can live in such a way that we think if we just had a little bit better paying job, we would be okay. If we just had a little bit more money in our account, we would be all right. If we just had a little bit more, and we start to convince ourselves that it is just in having a little bit more that our well-being will be taken care of. You know, the biggest users of the lottery in North America are the poorest people in North America. Stats come back again and again that the lottery ends up being a, a tax, they say, on the poor. It's playing on the greed that is among those who are caught up in poverty. If, if I only had a little bit more, and can you imagine if I had a whole lot more? How much greater would life be? I, I would be set. And we begin to convince ourselves that it is in having more and in gaining more that our well-being is found. And in that move, we begin to forget God. Pride. He says, my crops, and, and begins to bend towards, I'll take life easy. One of the most uh, convicting sermons and, and most troubling sermons, one that I've come back to a couple of times, by a guy named John Piper. He's a pastor of, of a, a Reformed Baptist church out in Minnesota. Uh, he's, he's done lots of good things uh, writing-wise about our desiring for God and recognizing the hunger we all have for God. And one of the things he said is, Christians were never meant to retire. He didn't mean there isn't a stage where you stop your professional vocational work but he was going after the attitude that he found in his church and that we find so prevalent in our culture that we deserve a time of life where we can take it easy, where we can stop and just simply enjoy, that we've put in our time and now other people can take over and we can disappear and simply take in pleasure. All for me the language about retirement in our culture, the language about saving for retirement, so often is not just to have my needs met. So often it is about how can I get to a place where I can quit working and live for myself? And how can I get there as quick as I can? It's a selfish orientation. It's rooted in this sense of pride that if I have enough, everything's okay. If I earn enough, everything's okay. If, 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 money, 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 then my life will be okay. And somehow in the midst of that conversation, in the midst of that cultural bent, of everything being bent towards working to the day where we don't have to work anymore because we're going to be financially set, we lose sight of God. It's really this whole conversation and cultural bend towards retirement and making sure we have more than enough to enjoy a comfortable life all to ourselves really comes from a fear of never having enough 
and underlying that fear is a distrust in God. That somehow God will not provide for me. That God will not take care of me. That God will, will allow circumstances to come in my life that will leave me in trouble and separated from any purpose and meaning and value in life. And fear begins to dictate our planning. This is not to say that we don't plan. This is not to say that we don't make plans for the future and we don't set aside money. It's not a, a message that you can't have savings accounts. But it is in the midst of it to say, what's our motivation? What's the craving? What's driving us and shaping us as we do that planning? Is it a desire so that we can be in a posture where we can serve others in a different capacity than we can now? That we can have the financial freedom to be able to, to bless others and be generous towards others? Or is it something that is rooted in the self-preservation? I have to take care of me and my own because no one else will, including God. All mine. I want us to see how God has, throughout Scripture, very consistently painted a different picture and a different approach for us. I think this is probably one of the sins that we collectively struggle with the most. But there is a whole different approach listed all the way through Scripture. And one, we start to see it in God's generosity in and through Israel. They're coming out of their time of slavery in Egypt and, and God, through a number of ways, reminds him that he is the one who has been caring for them. He is the one who is providing for them. If you think the, the, about the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments actually don't start with the commandment. They start with a preface, a preamble that says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery, out of the land of bondage. It starts with what God has done for us and a God who has taken care of us when we thought it was impossible for us to be taken care of. When the circumstances seemed overwhelming and unforgiving, God stepped in and delivered. That mantra of God as the one who provides for us comes out beautifully in the whole chapter of Deuteronomy 8. It says at one point in Deuteronomy 8, the whole time you were wandering in the desert, you didn't go hungry and your shoes never wore out. Forty years of wandering, your shoes never wore out. That's how much I paid attention to you. That's how much I have provided for you. Even if you think about it, the 40 years of wandering was because of the rebellion and the refusal to trust God. Even while you refused to trust me, I took care of you. I gave you food and manna. I, I fed you and watered you and provided for you again and again and again. And then it says, as you enter the land where there's going to be more than you imagine possible, a land flowing with milk and honey, don't forget God. Do not forget the Lord your God. It becomes, chapter 8, one of the pivotal passages for the Israel people as they move into the land. As you come into this place with all sorts of blessings and material wealth that you never imagined possible, do not forget God. It says something about the temptation we face when we start to have things, doesn't it? The command is not, go out and be generous. As soon as I give you something, give it away. 
It isn't even go and sell everything and give it to the poor once I give it to you. It's when you come into this land, when you are going to have more than you ever imagined possible, do not forget God. And at the end of it, he says this, Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. This passage is one that convicted me before. I used to think it was, it was about accumulating wealth. If we ever had wealth, we were doing something wrong. There were points in my life I debated whether or not I need to take a vow of poverty and move into that, that space of, of living in one of those type of orders where you vowed poverty and you lived with, with barely anything. But this pastor said, no. God actually gives us the ability to produce wealth so that, as we see later on, we may become a blessing to others. But God gives us that ability. Covenant. The covenant here is with the whole community. I give you this covenant. I confirm my covenant by giving blessings to you as a people. Sometimes we want to read this individually and say, well, where's my share of the blessings, God? Huh? When are you going to give me my share? But that isn't what he's saying here. I give my blessings to the community. I confirm my covenant to you as a people as I give you wealth and bless you. And as we hear this being played out, there is in that community a provision for the poor, for the widows, for the orphans, for the foreigners. All the way through Deuteronomy, all the way through Leviticus, all the way through Numbers, there's refrains about how God is giving blessings to the people so that they can take care of the poor who are in their midst, the widows who are among them, the, the, the orphans who are there, the foreigners. For you yourselves were once foreigners. I'm giving you this. I'm confirming my covenant with you so that you can extend this blessing to others. Along with that, we start to hear in the laws that are written. If we can go to the next line, maybe. Sometimes it freezes back there. I'll keep going. We'll see if the slides catch up. Um, part of what God ends up doing along the way is giving the people something called a kinsman redeemer. So that as people fall into trouble, as they fall into places where they themselves are struggling and facing poverty, there are other people in the family who God has blessed and given riches to, and it is their job as the kinsman redeemer to come alongside those who are struggling and to say, I've got your back. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you in your time of need. And so the people see that the extended family, not just parents or siblings, but the broader community is intended to take care of each other. And on top of that, God adds in a year of Jubilee. And many scholars, as they look at this, they say, you know, if the year of Jubilee was actually practice, it's one, once every seventh Sabbath year. So every seven, seven, set of seven years, 
the year of Jubilee would come in. And when that year of Jubilee came in, everybody got to go back to their ancestral property. It was returned to them. And it was a way of preventing that generational poverty from setting in. I am going to provide for you, even in the very structure of the community, the whole community is going to be structured in such a way that through your giving, which takes care of the poor, through, through the kinsman redeemer, which takes care of the poor, through the year of Jubilee, which takes care of the poor, you will see my generous character. In fact, the people of God, as they are together as a whole, begin to model this generous character of God. They embody it. God setting down a people who would display to the whole world God's generous character. God setting up a community of people in such a way that everybody was taken care of and that everybody together would experience God's goodness and God's grace. My clicker is not working, so I'm going to set it down. Are you able to click to the next side, Colin? If not, I'm, I'll just keep going and we can shut that off. All right, Colin, why don't we just shut off the slide so it's black and I'll just keep talking. Okay. The, the next piece in this movement is that we see that the people of Israel never really fully embodied God's generosity. They are in many ways the brother who won't share the inheritance. The rich, the greed gets, gets embodied among the people instead of God's generosity. And God, along the way, ends up sending Jesus Christ. And it's amazing to me when I start looking through the lens of generosity and God's generosity at the language that gets used around Jesus Christ's coming. In Romans chapter 5, we get this language. While we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. God displaying his generosity, not when we've come near to him, not when we've proven ourselves worthy, not when we've pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps, but God coming near us and saying, even while you're my enemies, I'm going to be generous toward you. And just a couple chapters later, Romans chapter 8, Paul, who's trying to describe the goodness of God and, and the magnitude of, of God's gift to us in Jesus Christ, says it this way, how will he, not, not only along with Christ, along with him, uh, not only give us him, but give us all things? When we who are desperate, we who are lost in our sin, we who had no one to advocate for us, God displays his generous character to us in giving us Jesus Christ and then assuring us, if I've given you my son, trust me. Believe me that I will give you everything you need. You will not be a people who are in want. Ephesians chapter 1. As Paul is trying to describe to the Ephesians church in one of these super long sentences, in the Greek it's it, it like a hundred and something words. I forget how long it is. It, it is a grammatical nightmare. We had a, a Greek prof who told us to try and trace this out and map it out. You remember those assignments? Where's the main verb? I have no clue in this passage. It is Paul tripping over himself again and again, trying to find any way possible to talk about the greatness of God's love. And he says, 
the riches that God, riches of God's mercy that he has lavished on us in Jesus Christ. That word lavished upon us in Jesus Christ. It's the idea of, of a ridiculous pouring out. It is take the richest person you know or can imagine, Bill Gates, right? We think of Bill Gates, the richest, wealthiest person coming in and saying, everything I have is now yours. We cannot comprehend the greatness of how much has been lavished on us. And then 1 John chapter 3, using that same word lavished, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we might be called children of God. And that is what we are. How important is that idea in the context of this parable? Give me my inheritance. You're my child. You are my children. I'm taking care of you. Don't worry. Do not be afraid. God lavishing his riches Upon us. If we go to the next slide, please. It's the idea again. Not only in Old Testament Israel, not only with Jesus Christ, our God is a generous God. And it brings us to his generosity in and through us. How many of us know Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one? How many of us have no clue what that is? You don't have to raise your hand, don't worry. Heidelberg Catechism was written uh, 450 years ago, just over 450 years ago. It was a, a way of teaching the faith from one generation to the next. It was originally memorized. Did any of you have to memorize the whole thing? A handful, yeah. It was a way of orally passing on the faith that was developed about 450 years ago. And it starts out with this incredible question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'll stop there because typically that is where we stop. But it continues, and it actually ends with something that's quite powerful. It doesn't end with just comfort. It ends with propelling us forward, acting on God's generosity towards us. It ends this way. Because I belong to him, because I belong to him, I'm already his. Notice the contrary uh, position this takes. Instead of all mine of greed, all his, I belong to to God. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him until the day I retire. Right? No. From now on. From now on. From this day forward to the end of my life, till my dying breath to live wholeheartedly for him. What would that look like? I can't answer it for you. But I can tell you, I have to answer this question each day. As I wake up today and I say, wow, God, you gave me the breath of life once again today. How do you want me to live? How can I steward the breath you have so generously given me today? What would it look like for me to live wholeheartedly, not half-heartedly, 
not passively. What would it look like for me to live wholeheartedly, willing and ready from now on to live for you today? we keep going what we're really asking and what this Heidelberg Catechism and what the thrust of scripture as a whole is driving us towards how will God's generous character live within us that's what Jesus is saying to this young man in the crowd who says tell my brother to divide the inheritance and he's saying don't let greed hold your heart Let God's generous character hold your heart. And the question to us is how will God's generous character live within us? Not just individually, certainly we start there and we ask there, but how will that shape us as a community and shape the resources we have as a community and the time and the energy we have as a community? We can start naming it. Sometimes we say it's our time, our talents, and our treasure and say our time, our skills, and and the money and possessions we have, how will we, together as God's people, because of what God has been doing since the beginning, because of what God has done in Jesus Christ, how will we, how will we live God's generous character? I don't have the answer. I don't know what that will look like. In fact, part of God's generosity is to give us a whole body of people to discern that together. I'm going to invite us through the rest of this summer and as we head towards fall, and yes, I just did say fall, as we start making that bend towards fall to keep this type of question in front of us. How will God's generous character live within us? Let's pray. Thank you. Thank you for creating the world. Thank you for causing life to flourish. Thank you for a legacy of scripture that tells of your faithfulness and your generosity again and again and again, even when people ignored you and walked away from you. It gives us so much hope that there's a place for us in your kingdom thank you for Jesus Christ who who died and paid a price we couldn't pay ourselves, who reconciled us to you and, and gave us not only the place of servants in your kingdom but the place of being your children. Oh good and heavenly Father, you have been generous toward us again and again and again. Help us to see your generosity in every breath we take in every face we meet, and even when we look in the mirror, to see that you are generous. We pray now that by your Spirit, who is already at work in us, that you would grow your generous character among us, that people would see our generosity and turn and look to you and say, wow, God is more faithful and more generous than I ever imagined possible. May this be so. In Christ we pray. Amen. Invite us to stand.
and sing together number 343, Blessed Be Your Name.